Good morning, Jubilee. Well, um, if you've got your Bibles with you, which I hope you have, it would be great if you could turn to uh, two chronicles. Uh, it's tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament. And uh, so if you get to Psalms, you've gone too far. It's a bit before that. But um, I'm really excited that this term, we are going to be looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It covers about 100 years of Israel's history. And it's unfamiliar territory, I'd suggest, to many of us. Like I said, tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament, we might not appreciate that actually it relates to the final events of the Old Testament. The events which took place about 400 years before Jesus was born at the start of the New Testament. So it's that kind of period. But as we study it this term, I think we're in for a real treat because Ezra and Nehemiah has loads and loads to say to us today. So my plan for this morning is that I'm going to give us a brief overview of the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, the story so far, if you like. And then I'm going to give a very brief outline of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then I want to pick out some themes for us, uh, which I think will lay a foundation, which we're going to come back to again and again and again throughout this series. So I'd like to pray, actually. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you uh, helped men and women write it down millennia ago, and it still speaks freshly today as your living word to us. So would you stir us by your Holy Spirit, may you open our hearts, and may we be filled with your truth and challenged by your Spirit this morning. Amen. So like I said, just before we delve right into Ezra and Nehemiah, I I really do need to tell you the story of God's people so far up to this point. The history of any nation or any people group is a long and complicated tale. And uh, so I can only really pick out a few key phases. Um, And the first one begins like this. In the beginning, God created. So creation is the start of the story of God's people, the creation of the whole cosmos by God, including the human race. And sometime after that, in around 2000 BC, God chose a man called Abraham, chose him to be the the founder of a family, a chosen family. He he got this man, Abraham, out of obscurity in order that his family would demonstrate the grace of God to the rest of humanity, that he would be a blessing to all the nations. Sometime after that, and I can't go into the details, but this family ended up in Egypt, And there they became slaves to the king of Egypt called the Pharaoh. And a couple of hundred years after that, in 1300 BC, Moses rose up to be the leader of this people they were by now, bigger than a family. And by a series of miraculous events, he led this people out of Egypt in the events known as the Exodus. The Exodus showed that God was redeeming the people from slavery, bringing them into freedom and giving them a land of their own. After they'd exodused Egypt, they came into the land of Canaan, where they established themselves as a nation, 
They built cities and communities. They appointed prophets, priests and kings to rule over them and lead them. Until in about 1000 BC, David became their king. Shortly after that, the nation split into two. The northern kingdom called Israel quickly abandoned God and his ways. The southern kingdom, Judah, clung on for a little bit longer, but they too eventually were went off the rails and rejected God. And so as a result, the final stage in this brief summary is that the nations were taken into captivity, into exile. The northern one into obscurity and the southern nation of Judah conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And that was in around the year 600 BC. Happened over a period of about 20 years. But in 586, remember that date, Judah was finally defeated and taken away to Babylon. And this is where we pick up the story. And so I'd like to read you, hopefully you've found by now two chronicles. In chapter 36, right at the end, I'm going to read you a few verses. This is a summary of why the nation of Judah ended up in Babylon. So verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, the prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought them up against Sorry, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans or Babylonians who slew their young people with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. That is fairly downbeat as passages of scripture go. Pretty depressing. God's people had abandoned God in his ways. And so as God had promised, they were taken away into exile. And At this stage, if you just turn over the page in your Bible, you'll see that Ezra is next. And it does actually follow on from this point. And so before we do that, I just want to pick out three things. In verse 19, the first thing we see about the state of this nation and these people is that they have a scorched temple. In verse 19, they burned the house of God. The temple was the place where God's presence resided, the place where people came to worship, where they came to celebrate, to offer sacrifices, to receive forgiveness and cleansing. For the temple to be ransacked and looted 
and then burnt to the ground was of such devastating significance for the people. What it meant was that God could no longer dwell amongst his people. And since that was the defining characteristic of his people, he had to question whether they were the people of God anymore. The people now could no longer meet with God. They had a scorched temple. Secondly, they had a a shattered city in verse 19. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned its buildings with fire. The capital city of Judah was Jerusalem and it was devastated. The wall broken, buildings burnt, so security was gone. It became uninhabitable. There was no commerce. The heartbeat of the nation had been ripped out and they'd become the laughing stock of the other nations. Their God couldn't even save them. So they were a people with a scorched temple, a shattered city, and thirdly, a scattered people. In verse 20, those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants there. They were dispersed. It happened in stages, but the ruling elite were taken. Then the professional classes were taken. Then the skilled craftsmen and merchants were taken until all that was left were the poor of the land, surviving as subsistence farmers, no longer really a nation in a land of their own, but living in a borrowed place, devastated and scattered across the world. The temple, the city, the people, spiritually, politically, socially ruined. And so this is the context for Ezra Nehemiah. This is where we pick up the story. That's the state of the nation. And Ezra begins 50 or so years later, long years later, after this exile to Babylon. The people are still living in exile, in captivity. But then in 539 BC, a surprising thing happens. Suddenly... These powerful Babylonians are overthrown by the Persian king called Cyrus. And he sweeps into power, conquers Babylon and takes over. Now, he has a very different way of dealing with other nations compared to the Babylonians. His plan involves resettling people back in the nations where the Babylonians had taken them from. He allowed, encouraged even, the Jews to return and other nations to return and re-establish their society. His thinking was fairly pragmatic. He thought that that, that actually that policy would be better for the long-term stability of the Persian Empire, of his legacy, if you like. Still, they would have huge restrictions. They would still be controlled by Cyrus and the Persians, but they'd be allowed to return. And Ezra Nehemiah is the story, the 100-year story of these events for the Jews. And I'd really encourage you, before we pick up the story next time, in two weeks' time, I'd really encourage you to read Ezra Nehemiah. Read through it. Some of the chapters, I've got to be honest, I mean, Scripture's awesome, but some of the chapters are slightly heavy going with lists of people's names and numbers of plates and gold stuff and that kind of thing. But it's well worth a read.
The narrative itself is gripping. And just to help you, I've got a very easy breakdown of this, the kind of big acts through the two books. So they'll appear in this table, which you can see. But really, it centers around um, each book kind of split into half. So Ezra, the first half of it, chapters one to six, is all about the first return from exile, led by Zerubbabel. And the focus of that in 538 is the temple, reestablishing the temple. And then you'll get to chapter seven of Ezra, and it starts with, after these things. And there's about a 60 year gap at that point. And then the second return happens where Ezra leads a group and there he reestablishes the word of God, the law and society. Then you come into the book of Nehemiah. And this is probably the most famous part of these two books. Where Nehemiah leads a return and he rebuilds the walls. And then from chapter eight to the end of Nehemiah, the fourth act, if you like, is about Nehemiah's time as governor of Jerusalem, where the reforms of this of the society take place. So hopefully that will help you as you dip into it. And over the next term, we're going to be spending some time looking at these big pictures, looking at these leaders who lead the people back and seeing what God is saying to us through it. So back to that context where we were, even though these people were a people with a scorched city, a shattered, sorry, a scorched temple, a shattered city, and they were a scattered people, over and above all of this, they were God's people, and God had spoken. And it's at times like this that the prophetic really, really helps. In the light of the current circumstances the people were experiencing, the prophetic promises of God took on a new light and were interpreted in a new and fresh way. And what we find is that God's people were a people who had a sovereign hope. Now their hope may have been damaged or faded a bit because of these long years of captivity, but at the root of it, the root of their sovereign hope was that they were an exodus people. In that potted history of the people of God that I gave you at the start, the Exodus is the key event. It was so deeply embedded in their national identity that they were an Exodus people because it demonstrated God's salvation. It demonstrated his rescue and his redemption. He brought his people out of slavery into freedom, into the promised land into the inheritance that they had. The the whole thing of the Exodus was nothing to do with them and all to do with the grace of God. It was so important that they remembered it every single year with the Passover feast. And we know the resonance of the Passover for us as Christians. And the people of Israel held on to the hope that God would do it again. As he'd said, as he promised via his prophets. So as we come into the book of Ezra, I'm going to read the first three verses of chapter one. Have that Exodus idea in mind. Here we go. Ezra one, verse one. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So remember, this is 538 B.C. 
in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Did you spot it? Did you spot the echoes of Exodus? Here they are, the people in a foreign land. This time it's Babylon, not Egypt. Here is a foreign king ruling over them, but whose heart is in the hand of God. This time it's Cyrus, not Pharaoh. But maybe, just maybe, this is the second exodus. Maybe it's on its way. And the people, I'm sure, as they hear this edict from the king, would have their hopes, their sovereign hopes stirred afresh. And what does that mean? Well, I can't possibly be comprehensive about what this sovereign hope in God's promises might consist of. But I can give you a few pointers. The first thing is that they will no longer be a scattered people. They will be a gathered people. Jeremiah prophesied, when the 70 years are complete, I will bring you back. I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you from the nations. Isaiah, 400 years before, said... He will assemble the banished ones of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This scattered people are going to be gathered together again. But it's not just about people. It's about that city as well. The shattered city is going to be restored. Israel's songs spoke of the glory of Jerusalem. Listen to this one. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. Or what about this one? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Or this one, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. This shattered city is going to be restored again, but not just into a nice city, a pleasant place to live. This city is the chosen dwelling place of God himself. Years before Ezekiel, in his incredible vision, had seen the glory depart from the temple as God abandoned it due to the sinfulness, wickedness, rebellion and rejection of God. So the start of Ezekiel's prophecy, but towards the end of his prophecy, we read of the glory of God returning to fill the temple again. And he says, and the glory of the Lord came into the house. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. This scorched temple is going to become glorious once again. That's what the promises of God were saying. That's what the prophets were declaring. 
Let me read you a bit of Micah's vision. Micah chapter 4. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion or Jerusalem will go forth the law, even the word of God from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift its up sword against nation. Never will they train for war again. Do you see it? Jerusalem reestablished. God's presence himself in the centre of the city and the people streaming to it, gathered again in the presence of God. That was the sovereign hope that these people were clinging on to. But all of this was underpinned by the need for a leader, by the need for a saviour. The exodus couldn't happen without another Moses to lead them. And so they longed for the people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to them, a son will be given to them, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. For this leader will have the spirit of God resting upon him because the Lord has anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord and the year of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn, to bring a garland instead of ashes, gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of fainting, to establish oaks of righteousness, to rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up the former devastations, repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. This was part of the sovereign hope, a perfect saviour. And so the people would naturally ask, could it be Zerubbabel? This priest who led the first return? Or could it be Ezra? This teacher, this man of the law, who taught them again the law of Moses? Or could it be Nehemiah, who acted like a king in governing his people? Well, as we study these books, we'll see that although they were incredible men, they fell far short of the perfect saviour that was required. And we are ultimately drawn to look upon Jesus. But I feel like I'm straying into future sermons here. So what about us today? What about you? What is your hope? How real is your sovereign hope in his promises today? The prophetic emphasis of our call at this current time is to be a people who live as God's people. In his presence, establishing worship, restoring walls, building the city, advancing the kingdom. 
We may be a scattered people at the moment, but we too are an exodus people. We've been called from darkness to light. We've been rescued and redeemed from slavery and brought into freedom and adoption as sons and daughters. We're a people who want to see the faded church rise up and be glorious once more. A place of God's presence, of his grace, of healing, of deliverance. Of a place where worship reigns. We long for our shattered cities and towns to be places of wholeness and harmony, for justice to prevail, for freedom to abound, for the poor and the vulnerable to find refuge, for the whole of creation to be cared for. We long again, don't we, for the scattered people of God to gather once again in his presence. For I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's our dream, isn't it? And up from the ashes, hope will arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. All his promises are yes and amen. That is what we have sung this morning. So what are his promises? To us as a church, to you as individuals, I encourage you to revisit them. To think through what God has spoken. And how is it then that we're going to partner with God in establishing his kingdom here on earth? Because that's got to happen. And what we're heading towards is something even more glorious. It is not scorched. It is not shattered. It is not scattered. It's a glorious city with magnificent walls filled with the presence of God himself alongside a people no longer scattered but gathered from every tribe and tongue, nation and people group from right across the world all down through history. So please, as we look at these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, let faith rise again. Allow it to happen. Allow yourself to dream again and see what it is that this sovereign hope-inspired task that he has called us to do looks like. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to close. Just where you are, why don't you hold out your hands to our Father, invite the Holy Spirit to come. We've heard a lot of history this morning. and It can just be an academic exercise, but actually the history of God's people should stir faith in our hearts because what he has done, he can do again. So God, I pray, would you fall on your people now, right across Jubilee Church, scattered as we currently are, but gathered together around your word, would you fall by your Holy Spirit? Would you stir in us the promises that you've spoken? Maybe we've allowed to let them go dormant during lockdown. That can't happen now because we're no longer meeting together. God, would you stir our hearts again? Would you allow faith to rise? Enlarge our vision, we pray. Would we be stirred as we read these Old Testament promises, as we delve into the the prophecies that are over us as a church, that we are going to be a people who dramatically change our towns and cities because we advance your kingdom by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
Father, I pray a mighty blessing on each and every member of Jubilee Church this morning. And may you stir faith and hope in our hearts. Amen.